Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, we'll hear more about the challenges facing some smaller marijuana craft growers. The state has awarded licenses in areas that are considered disadvantaged. The growers are facing a deadline, but money remains tight. A reproductive rights advocate in the General Assembly tells us about a new state law that was signed this month and what other legislation might be coming. A report shows flaws in Illinois prison hiring. We'll learn more about that. And we'll hear about a new approach to deal with stigma surrounding people struggling with addiction. And if you've gone to buy eggs at the grocery store, you might notice the price has been going up. Turns out there are a few reasons for the jump. We'll have more. It's all coming up on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Ahead of reports on a rise in egg prices. You may have noticed that if you've been to the grocery store. We'll also talk with a leading reproductive rights lawmaker in the state about a new law and some other action that could be ahead. Those stories and more coming up this hour. Three years after recreational cannabis became legal in Illinois, many of the state's craft growers are still facing significant obstacles. Out of 88 licenses issued, so far only one facility is opened, and only one secured a loan through a state program set up specifically for marijuana businesses. Time is running out. The deadline for those businesses to be ready to go is March 1st. Alex Degman has more details. Think of the term craft cannabis like craft beer. Verano and Cresco, two of the big guys, have operated in Illinois since the state's pilot medical program. They'd be the Miller and Budweiser of the cannabis industry. They got in when major companies were allowed to start cultivation centers as large as 210,000 square feet, and they were ready to go when recreational use was legalized. You can find their products in a lot of dispensaries around the state. But the state's recreational marijuana program also makes room for smaller players like Reese Xavier, the CEO and managing partner of HT23. Xavier's company is taking over a bunch of space in a former strip mall. This was an Ace Hardware. This was a restore shop. I want to say like a Habitat for Humanity restore or resale. There was a Liberty Tax and then a boxing gym. We're at the corner of a busy intersection in south suburban Chicago Heights. There's a Burger King in the middle of the old mall's parking lot, and the site sits across the street from another strip center full of restaurants, a grocery store, and retail. So from that corner all the way down to the tree line all the way all the way back down to the tree line down there. Xavier didn't think about entering the cannabis industry until a few years ago. That's when he researched some of the drug's medical benefits, and he was impressed by the state's plan to reinvest some marijuana revenue into communities that were disproportionately impacted by past drug enforcement policies. He also sees cannabis as an economic catalyst. I thought if I could find a company that could be rooted in, in the community, that could provide economic opportunity, maybe that would change things around. And I thought cannabis could be the, the tool to make that happen. The state had people like Xavier, who's African-American, in mind when issuing 88 conditional craft grow licenses. All of them were issued to companies meeting social equity criteria. That means most of the company's ownership has either lived in a disadvantaged area the majority of the last 10 years or been convicted of a cannabis offense, or hires a majority of their workers from a disadvantaged area. Disadvantaged here refers to an area that's been significantly affected by past drug enforcement, and it's used here as a proxy for race. The idea was to create a lower barrier of entry for people who don't have access to as much capital. 
But there's a major problem. Xavier can't attract investors in part because of state regulations. One of the main questions they ask, well, how much can you grow? Remember how the big companies can grow in 210,000 square feet? Well, craft growers only get 5,000. We have to start, well, 5,000 square feet. And, and as I quickly try to say, well, we can go up to 14, they say, well, wait a minute. What are the, what are the big folks doing? Uh, well, they have uh, 210,000 square feet, and that's almost a stop sign. Like, whoa. Other craft growers are in similar situations. They're facing delays and problems getting financing or outside investments. Even if they are allowed to use 14,000 square feet initially, there's no guarantee that they'll have the startup capital to do it, and there's no guarantee investors will come back. To help with financing, the Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity, or DCEO, started a loan program for social equity cannabis businesses with two financial institutions. Craft growers are eligible for up to a million dollars, half of that from the state, the other half from either Good Tree Capital or Credit Union One. Xavier was turned down by Credit Union One. They didn't tell him why, and they didn't respond to me when I asked. But he has an idea. I would imagine that the lending institution has to evaluate. You know, and a startup company, social equity applicants, no cash flow. Oftentimes, you know, we're not millionaires. Although he hasn't been approved for anything yet, Xavier says he is working with Good Tree Capital. They also didn't respond to questions. Growers and other cannabis businesses that have already been granted a license can still apply for a loan. But DCEO spokeswoman Emily Bolton in an email acknowledged the, quote, certain level of uncertainty that came with a new program based on a still federally illegal substance. That led to the launch of the new Direct Forgivable Loan Program in November. Bolton says DCEO is exploring other options for future lending program opportunities. But will it be too late for this cohort of craft growers? I'm not naive to the uphill challenges that any small business uh, faces, but I really do believe at this point that we're being set up to fail. That's Lisbeth Vargas Jaimes, the executive director of the Illinois Independent Craft Growers Association. She says only one craft grower operation has opened so far in Illinois, and even though DCEO says several more are close to getting approved for financing, everyone with a conditional license has to be ready to operate by March 1st. Really, realistically, our fear is March 1st is going to come around the corner, and people who weren't able to be operational or leading up to that are, are going to be forced to either buckle, lose their license, or sell. The Illinois Department of Agriculture, which oversees craft grow licenses, says that deadline has already been extended multiple times. Officials didn't say if they plan to extend it again. Advocates also want legislative fixes, but it's hard to pass things related to cannabis. Democratic State Senator Christina Castro of Elgin sponsored the bill that craft growers have long wanted, increasing the amount of grow space that they can immediately use. But it languished for almost a year, didn't go anywhere, and now it's too late. That legislative session ended, so now Castro has to start over. My commitment is to continue to working on this, and I know there are other things that, you know, industry and also craft grow are looking into, and so maybe it can become a, like part of a small package. In the meantime, Reese Xavier with HT23 continues seeking loans. While he waits, he's pushing the business forward with his infuser license. He plans to make things like gummies and vape cartridges to get products into stores as quickly as possible. We're trying to, you know, scale back our need to the bare minimum, break it up into phases, become operational, generate some money, and then uh, be able to, to move forward on a second, second phase. Xavier says starting up the kitchen will cost about $2 million, but it'll take around $9 million for HT23 to fully build out. He says he's pretty confident that his company will be operational within the next six months. And as he crowdfunds, invests his own money, and starts infusing, he says the state hasn't held up its end of the deal. And so he waits. I'm Alex Dagman.
The Illinois State Water Plan has been updated for the first time since 1984. Indy Kara tells us more. The collaborative plan looks at water challenges across the state, like climate change, flood damage mitigation, and water quality. Plan authors also paid close attention to social and environmental justice. Lauren Wobig is director for the Office of Water Resources. He says out west, plans are focused on getting and conserving water, but that's not the case in Illinois. Because we have the water, and so it's not just a plan of how do we get water, it's a plan about how do we manage and be the best stewards of the water that we're blessed with in the state of Illinois. Wobig says the plan is meant to help state agencies set priorities and raise awareness around water issues. I'm Indy Kara. Consumers may have gotten used to seeing higher food prices at the grocery store in the last couple of years, but the price of one food has risen more sharply than others, eggs. Egg prices in December were up almost 60% over the same time a year ago. That's according to the Consumer Price Index. And as Kendall Crawford reports, the bird flu is partly to blame. When you walk through the doors of the Sugar Shack Bakery in Sioux City, Iowa, you can smell the assortment of cakes and cookies on the shelf before you see them. All right, two caramels uh, and two And to make each sweet-smelling treat possible, it takes a whopping 300 eggs every two to three days. Lately, that's meant a much higher bill for Claudia Hessa, the bakery's owner. She says she's been spending more than double on them. And she says she can't double or triple sales to make up for it. You just can't. It, you, you wouldn't, you'd be out of business. You'd be able to sell it. So it's like, yeah, what do you do? The average cost for a grade A large carton of eggs hit $4.25 last month, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. This time last year, it was less than half that. Egg prices have risen more than any other food product, according to the Consumer Price Index. It's the largest we've seen in any category for quite some time. That's Pat Westoff. He's the director of the Food and Agricultural Policy Research Institute at the University of Missouri. He says egg prices are typically more volatile than other food commodities. So it takes a pretty big increase in price to convince people not to buy quite as many eggs. So uh, a relatively modest percentage decline in production has resulted in a very large percentage increase in prices. Inflation has hit all food prices. That's because of supply chain disruptions, the war in Ukraine, and high labor wages. But the supply of eggs also shrank, and that really impacts cost. That's exactly what happened after a deadly bird flu hit egg layers, says analyst Maro Ibaburu of the Egg Industry Center. We lost 44 million laying hens last year because of avian influenza. So that creates a reduction on the, on the number of eggs that can be produced. Avian influenza is deadly for entire flocks. When the virus is detected in one bird, federal law requires that all remaining birds be culled to keep the highly pathogenic virus from spreading. And 2022 marked one of the virus's deadliest outbreaks. New at noon, a disaster proclamation is issued for a county in northwest Iowa over the bird flu. The proclamation from Governor Kim Reynolds impacts... Last March, one of the country's biggest egg producers, Rembrandt Enterprises, had to call a flock of more than 5 million hens. The virus killed almost 15 million egg layers in just Iowa, which leads the nation in egg production. 
and major bird losses continued through September, right before winter, when eggs hit peak demand. The good news is that last month was likely the peak for prices as well. Iowa State University agricultural economist Lee Scholes says the USDA is forecasting better days. They do expect prices to decline some, maybe about 30% off these historically high levels in 2022 as we look at 2023 prices. That's if bird flu doesn't cause another disruption. Still, Scholes is hopeful. Buyers could be shelling out a little less next season. I'm Kendall Crawford. The Illinois Public Safety and Violence Prevention Task Force recently held a hearing about an increase in K-12 school violence over the past few years. Peter Medlin of WNIJ reports. Around one-third of teachers in the United States say they've experienced at least one incident of verbal harassment or threat of violence from students during the pandemic. That's according to a 2022 survey from the American Psychological Association. It's a big jump from before COVID when 10% of teachers reported being threatened. That's one reason why late last year, the Illinois Legislature's Public Safety and Violence Prevention Task Force met with educators and school administrators to talk about these challenges. Some educators from the Illinois Education Association shared testimony of traumatic experiences from the classroom. Last week, a student made threats to a teacher and said he is conducting a survey with other students to figure out which teacher he should kill. A co-worker reported this incident to the principal and other management at the district. Nothing has been done and the student is back in class. The teachers from across Illinois also shared stories about students hitting and throwing chairs at them. Some educators say the massive disruption of the pandemic is behind the increase in extreme student behaviors. It could be partly to blame with younger students who might have been at home for part of pre-K or elementary school, crucial developmental years where kids learn so many social-emotional skills. Mel Gilfallon says that's what he sees. He's the president of the Rockford Education Association. He says when you think of school violence, your mind might automatically picture a big high school student threatening a classmate or teacher, but that's not what's most common. We have seen uh, you know, an uptick in um, some aggressive behaviors, especially from our youngest students. He says Rockford teachers brought these concerns to the union early in this school year. They followed up with district administration, and teachers are still bouncing around solution ideas on district advisory boards. Solutions are difficult to find, but especially so when it comes to the youngest students. You can't just suspend somebody who's five, you know, walk them out of the building. They've got to be supervised at all times. State Representative Barbara Hernandez, a Democrat from Aurora, sits on a task force. And she says that one thing that stuck out to her during the meeting was that schools respond or don't respond to these issues in different ways. Schools not having a path, a solution or a protocol to certain items. If a student hits a teacher or they get in trouble or safety concerns, I feel like there's not a specific standardized protocol. And like that threat described by the Illinois Education Association, not every teacher gets support from their school to solve these problems. Unique Morris with the IEA says administrators will often tell educators that their hands are tied. There's nothing they can do to help. They will say because of Senate Bill 100, we are not able to have any consequences, which I know is not true. That's a misinterpretation. Senate Bill 100 went into effect back in 2016. It told schools to limit exclusionary discipline like suspensions and expulsions and to only resort to it if they've exhausted other interventions. And the student's presence would be a threat to safety or significantly disrupt learning. But it's up to schools to decide when a student has stepped over that significant disruption line.
Jadine Chow is the chief of safety and security at Chicago Public Schools who presented to the task force. She says in a situation where a student is having some kind of crisis episode, their best practice is actually not to remove the student from the classroom, but to remove everyone else. Then they have trained behavioral specialists who can de-escalate the situation. But after that situation, how do schools evaluate how they can help students showing extreme behavior? For one, Chow says at CPS, they look at if the student is on an individualized education plan. If so, are they receiving those services? Are they working with school mental health professionals? Does the school even have social workers on site? And if they need even more guidance, school districts are now required to have threat assessment teams to help make decisions about whether a student's presence is disruptive or threatening. And more and more school districts are taking steps to decrease exclusionary discipline. Removing a student from their classroom might work to stop the behavior now, but it may not help get down to the root causes of an issue and prevent it for the long term. Many, like Chicago Public Schools, are implementing elements of restorative justice. They say that doesn't mean no consequences, but rather, hopefully, instructive ones and interventions like trauma-informed therapy. Representative Hernandez and the task force will publish a report this year on their findings, and she says lawmakers on the task force may file school safety-related bills in the current legislative session as well. I'm Peter Medlin. There's more to come on Statewide. Stay right here. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Stigma continues to surround people living with addiction. It is present in medical settings, too, and can negatively impact the quality of care received by someone who uses substances. Darian Benson with Side Effects Public Media reports one researcher wants to see if theatrical portrayals of life with addiction can help reduce stigma among medical professionals. Belle Smith has had several negative experiences in healthcare settings. She remembers one in particular that made her cry. A few years ago, she was living in South Carolina, using heroin, and didn't have access to a clean syringe. The needle broke in her arm and caused an infection. Smith says the hospital refused to give her anesthesia and opted to use a local numbing agent while they tried to get the needle out. She says it was incredibly painful. Looked up at one of the nurses, obviously, in pain, and she said, well, then maybe you just shouldn't do heroin. And I just remember just, like, silently crying while they dug in my arm. Research suggests Smith is not alone. A systematic review based on more than two dozen studies found that most healthcare professionals hold negative attitudes toward patients with substance use disorders. These attitudes can result in patients receiving suboptimal care. Smith's experience led her on the path to becoming an occupational therapist. She wants to help people with substance use disorders navigate life after they leave inpatient treatment, rehab, or incarceration without misusing substances. While in grad school, Smith came across work from Sally Wasmuth, an assistant professor of occupational therapy at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, who does work on reducing stigma, including stigma about addiction. Smith shared her story with Wasmuth. She's one of dozens of people with experience using substances that Wasmuth has spoken with in recent years. Wasmuth works with a theater company to turn those stories into monologues, working with professional actors to create video productions. In one of the recorded monologues, actor Ryan Ruckman portrays a man who had a rough time as a teen, and it led him to drink alcohol and smoke cannabis every day. Me and my friends, we do drugs, and I'm feeling so numb and good and perfect. And I turned to them and I said, I'm doing this for the rest of my life. 
Each production includes five or six monologues about showing the diversity of people's experiences with substance use. So far, these recorded theater productions have reached more than 5,000 healthcare workers across the country. We really not only want to reduce societal stigma, but we specifically want to reduce implicit biases and stigma among healthcare providers so that people can get better care. Wasmuth believes the films can be a better method for implicit bias training compared to traditional trainings used. We think that using narratives and using things like theater and film can help people receive the information or empathize with the stories because their guard is down. They're just kind of relaxing and listening to people's stories. Before and after viewing the film, doctors, nurses, and other hospital staff participate in a research study and take a survey on stigma. The results are preliminary, not yet published, but Wasmuth says on average, after healthcare workers watch the production, they have a slightly less negative attitude toward people who use substances. Rachel McFadden is an occupational therapist at Eskenazi Health in Indianapolis. She heard about Wasmuth's research and immediately signed up to facilitate the trainings. McFadden says the productions help humanize an often uncomfortable and taboo topic and make for more compassionate healthcare professionals. To check our biases and to hear the perspective of someone else and know the power that our words have and know the power that we have to turn things around and make them go positively or the power that we have to negatively impact someone is really important and it helps us guide us to provide the best care for people. The next steps for Wasmuth's research include tracking whether the reduction in stigma among health workers persists long-term, and measuring whether patients who use substances feel more satisfied with the care they receive after their providers receive the training. I'm Darian Benson, SideFX Public Media. SideFX Public Media is a regional reporting collaboration focused on public health. A state report shows systemic flaws in Illinois prison hiring. It has to do with the Division of Corrections that does the intelligence gathering inside and outside correctional facilities. John Norton talked with WGLT reporter Charlie Schlinker about it. Charlie, first of all, how did this start? Well, it started with an anonymous tip about a simple, single case of nepotism. The Executive Ethics Commission found that Illinois Department of Corrections Southern Region Commander of Investigations Larry Sims directed staff at the Illinois River Correctional Center to hire a family member for an intelligence investigation job at that medium security prison in Canton. The arrangement happened even though the family member hadn't applied for the post and a different person had been approved for the job. Now, the investigation by the state executive inspector general's office shows a much more pervasive problem and a a really startling lack of appropriate hiring policy that dates back decades in the uh, division. The long-standing way to fill those posts was to have uh, people within the investigations division or prison facility management refer candidates to apply. How big an issue is this? Well, the Investigations Division has more than 80 people that do full-time intelligence work, both within prisons and outside. Over the last couple decades, there have been a couple hundred people through that division. What do these investigators do? Well, the division mission is to make prisons safer. They try to prevent crimes, suppress gang activity, and they investigate misconduct by correctional workers themselves. Sometimes they work with police departments and other law enforcement agencies. They have a lot of power. For instance, other than prison management, intelligence investigators are the only IDOC workers 
who can access video and audio recordings of conversations by inmates with their relatives and friends, and email-like inmate messaging, too. Investigators can also look at emails and internal messages of other correctional employees. Well, aren't there standardized hiring practices? Because this is the state, right? Aren't there rules governing this? Oh, you bet. <laughs> Lots of courts have ruled, issued decrees, ordered Illinois to do various things to limit uh, political, insular, and patronage hiring. But the Inspector General's report says there isn't even an official position description for the people in this division. Mm. The jobs aren't posted centrally or publicly. Now, sometimes prison officials would read off the position openings at guard roll calls. In other cases, the positions were referral only. Those involved got around the usual requirements by labeling the jobs a detail, which suggests a temporary assignment. Inspector General investigators didn't buy that excuse. Here's a quote. It's clear that assignments to Intel exhibit none of the characteristics typically found in detail assignments, unquote. Now, none of the employees interviewed during the investigation had been told there were time limits on the appointment. Many remained in the post for years, one more than 15 years. The Corrections Department followed no union provisions regarding details. Uh, corrections workers told investigators even seniority didn't matter in deciding which people got the jobs in Intel. Investigators flatly call it mismanagement, and they say the way things ran allows easy hiring manipulation. Wow, that's a lot. Consequences for any of this? A couple of things. First, is the state getting the best people for the jobs? No job description, no way to require previous experience in investigation. There is a 40-hour training course, but one source says that's not nearly enough. If you have people with only that training course, you might not get the best intelligence, and that can make prisons less safe. One state employee tells us there's a different kind of inmate today than there was two decades ago. That person said they're younger, they have more mental energy, it's not directed in a good way, and they're sophisticated on how to stay in touch with uh, people outside the prison. And if investigators don't have a grasp of what technology is doing and how the inmates are trying to outslick the corrections officers, there will be problems. There's a second outcome, too. What happens to regular correctional workers compared to people who get the job in investigations? The executive inspector general says people in the investigative division have training and assignment experience that gives them advantages for promotion when higher level positions open up. So what happened in the uh, case of the nepotism that started this whole investigation? Commander Sims ended up retiring from his position. Uh, the department had begun disciplinary proceedings against him. A letter included in the inspector general's report noted the anticipated punishment, though, would have likely have been just a 30-day suspension. A WGLT source says in addition to Sims, other correctional administrators with some involvement in the case have also retired. But we're told at least one has not, and remains in a senior position. How about more broadly now? Is there change? The IG report shows a back and forth for some months among state officials on that. The Corrections Department had a preliminary plan on how to move forward. It involves the governor's office and the Department of Central Management Services. There will be actual selection criteria for the jobs, job descriptions, ways to notify potential applicants, a formal application process, a formal chain of command and reporting structure for the division, rules to make sure decision makers disclose conflicts of interest, 
and, oh yeah, performance reviews of workers. These are all the things that they should have had more than 20 years ago. And those changes were underway as of last June. All right, how about anything more recent? Hard to say. Here's the official statement from the Corrections Department as of January 9th. The department implemented initial changes to the process to immediately provide a more transparent selection process for these positions. These changes were outlined in our response to the Office of the Executive Inspector General. The department anticipates additional changes to the process. Corrections declined to address any more questions. Things like, since the people weren't vetted appropriately, are you going back and making sure the ones there now are qualified? Would you do more training for those that aren't? And the governor's office pointed us right back at the corrections department and declined to answer questions. How about legislative action? Is there any any scope for that? State Senator Sally Turner of Lincoln says she doesn't think so, since there are already established state hiring rules that corrections should have been using. Turner, by the way, has two facilities uh, in her district. She does find the report troubling. She says executive ethics commission reports don't go to lawmakers, and maybe they should might be a change to increase transparency and allow for a broader review. You know, this seems to me that this should be a lot bigger deal around the state than it is, right? Uh, The report didn't get a lot of attention after it was posted to a state website in mid-September. There was one wire story, not a lot else. State Senator Turner says she does want an update. She wants to know where they are now, six months after the report was finalized, and whether the Corrections Department is now following the rule of law. You may recall September was the middle of election season. I asked Senator Turner whether that factor might have affected the response to the report. She said she couldn't answer that, but she also smiled at that. That's reporter Charlie Schlinker. You can read more on the Inspector General report. We have a link at our website at nprillinois.org. Just look for statewide. The national battle against abortion has reached small-town governments. Towns in Iowa, Nebraska, and Texas have banned abortion within their borders. Some are as small as 100 people, and many are hundreds of miles away from the nearest clinic. Elizabeth Rimbert takes us to one community where the stakes are higher. So this ordinance is to uh, ban abortion in in the city of Belgium. At the corner of a busy intersection, pink and blue balloons and a big picture of a fetus are tied to a white tent. It's for a petition that would outlaw abortion here in Bellevue, an Omaha suburb. Margaret Ross lives in the city and stopped to add her signature. My perspective comes from a biblical worldview. So the sanctity of life is important to God, and so it's important to me. If the proposal is approved by the Bellevue City Council or voted in through a ballot initiative, anyone who performs or aids an abortion in the city could be sued by private citizens. Just down the street from the tent sits an abortion clinic, one of three providers in Nebraska. Only a couple sparse trees separate the signs advertising an abortion-free Bellevue from the clinic's parking lot. No one from the clinic agreed to talk with us, but this is the only place in Nebraska that performs abortions up to 20 weeks, which Chelsea Souter says is a critical resource in the Midwest. She leads a group that helps people seeking abortions with financial support. 
because of all of the many restrictions and now bans that are in many states that has prolonged people's access to care, which in turn pushes people further in pregnancy. So it's really imperative that we have clinics that can be able to provide that care. Small towns across Nebraska, Iowa, Texas, and Ohio have outlawed abortions within their boundaries. A man named Mark Dixon is behind all those ordinances. He crisscrosses the country in his pickup truck to push abortion bans through local governments. I think all communities need to stand up. He helped get a ban in place in Lubbock, Texas, which shut down abortion services at a Planned Parenthood there. He's come to Bellevue to do the same. Supreme Court did say that this is an issue uh, to be returned to the states, their people, and their elected representatives. And that does include local governments. But it's not clear how legal the citywide bans are. Anthony Schutz, a law professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, says there are two questions at work. Do local governments have the authority to impose bans? And even if cities have that ability, do statewide rules overpower local ones? Those are the deeper questions that we have to answer, and they're, they're not questions about rights. They're questions about local government authority as it relates to the state. It'll take time to get answers. Schutz says courts don't like to rule on hypotheticals. That likely means someone would have to sue a city for its existing ban. In Willie, Iowa, where an abortion ban passed last spring, Mayor Kristen Nearing says she's only heard positive feedback. But she says the ordinance hasn't really impacted abortion access. We're a small town of 101 people, and there wasn't a, there's not a medical clinic, and there probably wasn't anything occurring in our community prior to this happening. It was, I think, more about the community wanting to be able to speak for what they believed in. Back in Bellevue, Sheila O'Connell signed the petition at the intersection. She says trying to shut down the clinic with a local abortion ban is just one part of an incremental approach. We have to take it piece by piece by piece. No more giant steps after Roe v. Wade. That was our giant step. We know that it's really more symbolic than anything at this point. Chelsea Souder, who works to help people get abortions, believes a Bellevue ordinance would be unenforceable and unconstitutional. Still, she says that doesn't stop it from increasing stigma and confusion. I think it's really just a fear-mongering tactic for them, and I think that it creates more chaos and misinformation around the general public, around what does this actually mean, how does this affect our community. The clinic's doctor told a local newspaper this summer that if the proposal goes into effect, he would follow the law, which could mean moving the clinic into Omaha. I'm Elizabeth Rempert. Still to come on Statewide, we'll talk with an Illinois lawmaker about a recently passed law regarding reproductive rights. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Well, Governor J.B. Pritzker this month signed a measure shielding reproductive and gender-affirming health care patients and providers from legal action originating in other states where such care is illegal. Maureen McKinney spoke with one of the architects of the new law, Democratic Representative Kelly Cassidy of Chicago. She says the law does several things. Everything we did was about one of three buckets. So there's protection, there's expanding access, 
and there's expanding capacity. The biggest piece of, of the bill is, is what's referred to as the shield provision. Um, and what that refers to is protections against foreign subpoenas from um, extradition orders that are illegal, things like that. So that this gives protections for patients, providers, for practical support organizations, family members, um, against that overreach from hostile states about act activities that are legal in this state. We, um, we, we did some cleanup work around um, throughout the statute. So there was old language that referred to the Parental Notice of Abortion Act um, that doesn't exist anymore, so, so that was a cleanup. Um, but also, you know, having seen, and this comes from talking to other states, having seen where uh, our opponents in other pro-choice states have looked for weaknesses in other parts of the law to, to, in an attempt to establish fetal personhood, um, so, so we looked at the Wrongful Death Act. We looked at um, we looked at the Parentage and um, Marriage and Dissolution Act to make sure that that language was tight and appropriate, and that there was appropriate guidance. For example, in divorce cases, when there are preserved embryos, and, and giving guidance to judges on how to do that. We address issues of network adequacy. So we we there's an, there is an item in the in the law that um, if someone has to go out of network to seek care because their in-network provider invokes the Healthcare Right of Conscience Act, that shouldn't cost that patient more. That, that patient should not have to pay out-of-network pricing um, because of this through no fault of that person's own. Um, so making sure that, that they still pay in-network prices. Um, clarifying that um, insurance coverage for advanced uh, uh, advanced access to abortion meds um, is covered. Uh, expanding insurance coverage uh, down to local government. Sort of the second half of SHIELD is the license protection. In most states, there is, um, it, the reality is that if, if somebody is, is licensed in multiple states, and we have a lot of that just given geography of our state, lots of folks who have fairly large areas on the other side of them, right? So lots of St. Louis, the St. Louis people are also licensed in Missouri, for example. When something happens to your license in that state, it automatically happens in this state. We, 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 are, we inserted provisions that um, clarify that if, the, if it's about an activity that is legal in this state, that discipline won't carry over, making sure that we are expediting licensure uh, for folks coming in to provide care. Um, and that's in several ways, um, ensuring that there's no, no malpractice insurance discrimination, expanding scope of practice for advanced practice nurses and physicians' assistants. What are some of those things that still have to be worked on? Anytime you have a bill around data privacy uh, in the General Assembly, it's a heavy lift. We know that it's important that we take our time and, and, and work with all the stakeholders on that, and that includes those various data companies. But the best protection against a foreign subpoena is for the data that it seeks to no longer exist. So we want to seek some pretty hardy and robust data destruction policies around some of the information that just gets collected passively. You know, we're working closely with Secretary of State Genolius around the, the question of uh, data related to automatic license plate readers. That's one very specific example. We're working with the Attorney General to address the, the challenges brought on by what we call fake clinics, you know, that set up, they, they attempt to lure 
uh, patients in on the promise of information about abortion when, in fact, what they're doing is, is trying to dissuade people from having abortions sometimes with bad information. Um, those are big pieces. And then, you know, what do we need to do? What investments do we as a state need to make for ensuring that there's sufficient training for providers, ensuring that, you know, the infrastructure is there for new providers? It sounds like to me a major concern was not only reproductive care, but gender-affirming care. You're absolutely right. And, and I said from very early on that was a hill I was willing to die on. The reality of what we're seeing around the country is increasing hostility, um, both governmental and individual hostility towards people in the trans community. Um, that is where we are seeing the most violence. That is where we are seeing the most um, violent removal of care. You know, we're seeing kids forcibly detransition. Frankly, reproductive health care is gender-affirming care. The governor's uh, proposal from his inauguration speech to have a constitutional amendment on abortion. I'm totally on board for that. I would like for it to be inclusive as well. Um, I believe that, you know, we have to protect bodily autonomy, period. But we also have plenty of time for that, right? The, the, the reality of a constitutional amendment is that it can't be on the ballot until November of 2024, which means we have until May of 2024 to, to get it on there. Um, it's why the working group didn't spend a lot of time on, a, on the constitutional amendment. Um, what's really important to me right now in this um, space and time is that we're, we get in place all the protections that we can because this is when people are going to be attacked. And then I'll, then I'll turn my attention to a constitutional amendment. Um, but right now, there are real practical considerations that we have to be addressing. That's Representative Kelly Cassidy of Chicago, and she spoke with Maureen McKinney. Mackenzie Martin joins us with the story of Dr. Annie Smith, a figure who looms large in Missouri's mythology for performing illegal abortions in the early part of the last century. Missouri has passed laws outlawing abortions in some form since 1825. But that didn't stop people from trying to terminate their pregnancies. Of course, most of the doctors who offered abortions did so in secret, so we don't know very much about them, with one major exception, Dr. Annie Smith. She is still a very controversial figure around town. That's Katie Ray at the Poplar Bluff Museum. If you talk to anybody about it, it runs the gamut of horrible butcher to champion for reproductive rights. Doc Annie, as she's called, graduated from osteopathic school in Kirksville in 1902. Shortly after, she and her husband opened up a hospital in Poplar Bluff, where she treated women and children for all kinds of health problems, tuberculosis, appendicitis, arthritis. Over her long career, Doc Annie also provided a number of illegal abortions. Twice, she was charged with felony manslaughter after her patients died. But mostly, Doc Annie was trying to save women from their own botched abortions. One of the cases that Doc Annie had, the woman had done something to herself, and she was trying to fix it. Doc Annie was exonerated of both manslaughter charges by the Missouri Supreme Court in 1934 because the procedure was performed in a life-or-death situation, and in 1939 because there wasn't enough evidence that proved she was the person who did it. But despite being cleared of wrongdoing, her reputation took a hit. She started building a house outside of town, but died before it was complete. And that's when rumors started to spread that Doc Annie had been building an abortion clinic. 
According to KBIA's Show Me the State podcast, after her death, teenagers from all over town started exploring her abandoned home. Of course, the rest of the legend was that she kept these babies in jars and in formaldehyde and threw them down the pit. A lot of the rumors were that the well contained fetuses. And a group of us as teenagers would go out there and tell ghost stories. Most of these ghost stories were total fabrications. By and large, Doc Annie was just a doctor trying to help women however she could. It made for a more compelling story for people for years, like the baby killer go down into the, the woods and and talk about how the, the souls of babies and Doc Annie will come and get you. <laughs> this is Parker Smith, Doc Annie's great-grandson. He says she also facilitated a number of adoptions. Once, Doc Annie herself adopted a child from a patient. It was just interesting to see, like, just the different ways that she cared for patients. When the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Missouri only had one remaining abortion provider for the entire state. But after the trigger ban took effect, that service is now only an option in cases of a medical emergency to save the patient's life. But just like Doc Annie experienced nearly a century ago, those circumstances aren't always clear. A chief medical officer at Planned Parenthood told Congress that Missouri's law is putting patients' lives at risk. In order for doctors to avoid prison time, doctors must now contemplate how sick is sick enough before providing life-saving abortion care. Meanwhile, the subject remains a touchy one in Doc Annie's hometown of Poplar Bluff. She's been mostly erased from the public history there. That's something Katie Ray wants to see changed. History is history. And, and it is what it is, and we can't get rid of our history. So that's why I feel very strongly that she should be included in the museum. For Parker Smith, it's Doc Annie's dedication to her patients that inspires him today. You know, she was just trying to do her job and trying to save these women's lives. And right now, he's taking that lesson into a second year of medical school at Mizzou. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Mackenzie Martin. That story comes from the KCUR Studios podcast, A People's History of Kansas City. The U.S. has been closely involved in the war in Ukraine, even though there's not been a significant troop deployment. It has sent equipment and other aid even before Russia's invasion last year. Eric Schmid reports how a single military command at Scott Air Force Base near St. Louis is central to much of the support for the Eastern European country. The war in Ukraine is quite different from most of the other conflicts the United States has been involved in in the recent past. Connor Savoy of the Center for Strategic and International Studies says that's because there hasn't been any overt U.S. military action within the country. You know, the biggest difference is that Ukraine has demonstrated its willingness and capability to defend itself if given the weapons and support and equipment it needs. It's a point Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky emphasized in his address to Congress late last year. Ukraine never asked the American soldiers to fight on our land instead of us. I assure you that Ukrainian soldiers can perfectly operate American tanks and planes themselves. The U.S. pledged to send Patriot missile systems to help with Ukraine's air defense just before Zelensky's remarks. And a few days after, Congress passed its massive spending bill, which includes another $45 billion in military, economic, and humanitarian aid for Ukraine. 
These deliveries are part of how the US military remains closely tied to the conflict. In a September video from Delaware's Dover Air Base, a half dozen airmen push a large stack of weapons onto a C-17 cargo plane. They secure the goods with metal chains before loading the next pallet onto the aircraft bound for Ukraine. These kinds of shipments happen nearly every day. We are helping Ukraine defend itself against the naked aggression from Russia. General Jackie Van Ovost leads the U.S. Transportation Command, based at Scott Air Force Base in the Metro East. It handles all of the military's logistical movements, including these deliveries to Eastern Europe. Let's say the air defense systems, the artillery systems, know that it came from the United States, mainly from the United States, and, and about 25 other countries have helped. She says her command identifies where these items are and determines how they'll get to Ukraine. Vanovost says she's coordinated cargo shipments from around the world, though a lot of it is sent from air and seaports on the East Coast. Savoy says the U.S. is in a unique position to provide this support because of the military's prowess with logistics. While other countries can replicate it, it's always at a much smaller scale. Countries have maybe three or four large transport aircraft versus the couple hundred large transport aircraft that the United States has. Vanovost says her command delivers munitions and other essential military equipment around the clock. She says they also have consistent contact with Ukrainian leaders to ensure they're sending the most critical humanitarian aid, too. Like right now, because of the winter, they pushed up the tents, the heaters, the, you know, the propane and, and they've moved down some other things. Doesn't mean they don't need it. They need it all because they're, they continue to get bombed. Vanovost says other non-military necessities include generators and transformers for the country's battered power grid. Even with the U.S. military's ability to deliver goods at any time, Savoy says it will still be difficult to send some of these items. We can't just go to like a warehouse run by Siemens or GE or some other large Western industrial conglomerate and just start pulling transformers and other grid components off the shelf. Savoy says they can take several months to produce. He says Ukrainians have been remarkably resilient, but without power and water for heat, millions more may leave their homes this winter in search of better conditions elsewhere in Europe. I'm Eric Schmid, St. Louis Public Radio. That's all the time we have for Statewide this week. Thanks for being along and join us next time for more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Our weekly podcast available through the NPR One app and all of our episodes can be found at the website nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.